Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Uh, our first reading tonight is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, <clears throat> um, starting at verse 1. That's on page 8 of the Red Pew Bibles. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Our second reading tonight is from the book of Ephesians, uh, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. That's on page 949 in the Red Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In, sorry, us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that, with the eyes of your heart enlightened, 
you may know what is hope to which you which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, of his glorious and, and what is immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put the work, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head of, over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. We live in a fractured, fragmented, scattered world. That's clear enough on a global scale. You just have to turn on the news. Wars rage, nations posture against one another. Economies get rattled by tiny little viruses. Physicists uh, tell us as well that it's true on a cosmic scale, uh, written into the thermodynamic laws of the universe, science. Written into the thermodynamic laws of the universe is the principle of entropy. Things tend toward disorder, which will eventually lead to the heat death of the known universe. What if we go the other way, not from the global to the cosmic, but from the global to the personal? In our own personal lives too, the fractures, the fragmentation, the scattering of life in this broken and sinful world is apparent, isn't it, in our own lives too? According to some recent Australian research, uh, we are on the one hand more socially connected than we've ever been, especially online, and on the other hand, we're self-reporting what have been rightly called epidemic levels of loneliness. Uh, The report that I've had a look at this week uh, opens uh, with this quote. It says, ours is perhaps the most socially connected generation in history. However, the paradox is that many Australians experience profound loneliness. A survey commissioned by Telstra of over 3,000 people in September 2021 indicated that nearly one in four Australians say that they don't have people they can regularly talk with or turn to while 30% say they never or rarely feel close to people. The loneliness reported by Australians uh, corresponds to historically high levels of relational breakdown and historically low levels of relationship formation. And that goes not just for marriage relationships, but also for de facto partnerships, for friendships as well, uh, at least as is self-reported by people in these surveys, uh, and goes as well for family, just higher reported levels of family breakdown than ever before in our history. The researchers in this report, again, that I've been looking at this week, found that nearly twice as many adolescent people reported high levels of loneliness in 2018 compared with 2012. And that's pre-pandemic data, right? You can imagine that those numbers might have even gotten worse since then. And so the report concludes, loneliness may well prove to be the most serious pandemic of our time. Fractured relationships, a fragmented society, scattered from one another in all kinds of ways... Loneliness might be a particular challenge in our own time and place, but human community, it turns out, has always tended in this direction. The story of the Tower of Babel tells us as much. It begins with what looks like a perfectly united, harmonious human community. Come, let's build a city, they say, with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Human beings, God's image bearers, with all the creative power and ingenuity that he's gifted them with, 
set their hearts and minds to the task of creating one unified people. And yet, of course, they seek to do it in human strength alone, without reference to God. And it becomes very quickly, especially if you dig into the really interesting details of that story, it becomes fracturing for their society. So that in the end, God looks down on their pathetic attempt to reach the heavens and frustrates their efforts. The Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Uh, the point of that particular story of Babel isn't just that it happened once here in one time and place, but that actually that's the pattern and the shape of human society always everywhere when connection is sought in disconnection from God. This is the shape of human society east of Eden, the shape of what happened to Adam and Eve expelled from the garden, Cain wandering in the wilderness, Israel exiled to Babylon, fragmented, fractured, and scattered. But... Always got to love when there are buts in the scriptures. Thanks be to God, the Babel story is followed immediately in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, by a promise made to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, the Lord says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has made a promise to remake what we have fractured, to put the fragments back together again, to gather into one what was scattered. And here... In this room, in this community represented by this gathering, that promise is being fulfilled. God is remaking everything that has been broken by sin and evil and death. And the heart of his plan for that in all the world throughout all eternity is his gathered people, the church. That's what church means, actually. Some of you will know at its most basic level. The English word church that we have translates the Greek word ecclesia, which means a gathering, an assembly, a group of people from other places brought together. A gathering. Here in this room, among us in the day-in, day-out life of the St. John's 6pm congregation, God's great and perfect purposes for the whole world are being worked out in real time. This is his solution to our fractured, fragmented, scattered world right here, this gathering, us, his people, the church. So in this new series, we're going to spend uh, the next six weeks uh, unpacking uh, what church is, this ragtag gathering of fairly ordinary people in and through whom God is remaking this broken world. Uh, it's an integrated series, as uh, Louise has mentioned, and that means that there's some material in your fellowship groups that you'll work out alongside this as well, keep digging into this during the week, and there's devotional material available to you as well. You might have seen in the e-news, you can sign up for that to receive it in your inbox every day through an email, or you can pick it up in hard copy on your way out tonight. We're really going to focus in on this kind of intensely, if you like, together. And as we work on this uh, I, this topic, this idea of uh, the church and what it is, what it's all about, what it looks like for us to, to walk together as God's people, we're going to keep coming back again and again to the New Testament letter to the Ephesians, which is a particularly rich source of teaching on the topic of the church. Now, where do you go for good coffee in Ashfield, apothecary? Where do you go in the New Testament to learn about the church? Ephesians. It's that simple. Straightforward. It's a given. So there's going to be a lot of Ephesians in this series. And we're going to start with the heady heights of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, which uh, Ollie's just read for us, uh, where Paul shows us how this extraordinary gathering, uh, sorry, this ordinary gathering, is related to the extraordinary grace of God in Jesus Christ and by his Spirit. Tonight we're going to start with some broad brushstrokes, if you like. We just kind of, kind of paint in some of the basic colours of the church before filling in the details in the weeks to come. We're going to see three things about the church from Ephesians chapter 1. They're going to be on the screen for you. This is where we're going tonight. Three things about the church from Ephesians chapter 1. Firstly, we're gathered in Jesus. Secondly, we're gathered together. And thirdly, we're gathered in the heavenly places. 
Point one, we're gathered in Jesus. What is God's plan for remaking this broken world? He's made that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. He's going to remake what's been broken. What is his plan to do that? Paul lays it out for us in the middle of Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read for you from verse 9. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, that is, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. You see what's going on here? What was scattered, God is gathering back together, not just us, actually, but all things. And he's gathering them in Christ. Uh, War, crime, family breakdown, all of that is people who should be in harmonious relationship with one another, being scattered from one another, coming apart. Sickness and death, that's your body, which should be a unified whole, being scattered, broken, coming apart. But in Jesus, God is gathering all of them back together again. It hasn't happened yet, but that's where we're all heading. We haven't reached the fullness of time yet. But that's what God is doing in Jesus. All the fractures will be mended, the fragments glued back in place, the scattered remains of human lives and the non-human creation as well gathered together again. It's begun in Jesus, once crucified, now risen to new and undying life, his risen body, the first fruits of new creation. And what has happened to him will one day when he comes happen to everyone whose trust is in him and indeed to this whole earth. That's God's plan to gather up all things in Christ. It's always been God's God's plan. And it's only Jesus who can do it. It's only Jesus who can do it. Why is that? Because he deals with the fracture that's at the very heart of it all. Verse 7, just before those verses I just read to you. In him we have redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. At the heart of our fragmented and scattered world lies the impulse that led humanity in the days of Babel to build a tower reaching to the heavens. There's a fracture in the relationship between us and God. And it always, always, always leads to fragmentation and scattering. It's the true source of every conflict, global, local and personal. It's the reason the cosmos is drifting apart. It's the root cause of our loneliness. It's the reason that our bodies come undone in sickness and in death. And that's the fracture that Jesus came to mend. That's what he and he alone is able to heal. The true human, the one human being, his relationship with the Father is solid and sound all the way through. And who was sent out of the heavenly places to be fractured himself and broken, to pour out his blood, to make a way for the tear between us and God to be stitched back together again. And you see, what he's done for you and for me is the pattern and prototype for what he will do for the whole of creation in the fullness of time. All things will be gathered up in him, every fragment restored to its place, everything that sin and death have scattered, brought back together, as it should be. But here's the mind-blowing thing, the particular thing we learned from Ephesians chapter 1, the reason we're starting this series here. The really astonishing thing is this, that there's one place in the world where the gathering together of all things in Jesus is already happening ahead of the fullness of time. There's one place where this is already true, and that's the church. All throughout this chapter, Paul uses Old Testament descriptions of the people of God, Israel, to describe what it is that we Christians have received in Jesus. Verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, or perhaps better, we've become an inheritance. Echoing the way the Lord and the prophets describes Israel as my inheritance, my treasured possession. Verse 14, we've become God's own people. 
echoing the great promise to Israel that I will be their God and they will be my people. And we read in verse 23 that we've become Christ's body, that he fills with his own fullness, a way of Jesus identifying himself uh, with us as his very own flesh. You can't get closer to Jesus than that. And for the first time in our passage, for the first time in the letter of the Ephesians, verse 23, we are the church, the gathering. The gathering that of all things in Jesus begins here in this gathering. Those who've been gathered already in him, gathered now, just as in the fullness of time, all things will be gathered in him. So what is the church? It's the community of those who God has already gathered up in Jesus, the place where the fractures are beginning to be healed, where what was scattered has begun to be brought together again. Uh, Skip ahead to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul talks about this uh, in one sense more directly. We'll come back to this chapter later in the series. But Paul in chapter 3 of Ephesians speaks again of God's plan. Chapter 3, verse 9. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the wisdom of God and its rich variety might, might now be made known to the world. The plan that God has set in motion in Jesus is displayed for all the world to see where? In the church. The church is the tangible sign to the world of what God has set out to do in and through Jesus. And he works that plan out in and through Jesus' own body, through us. One theologian puts it like this. It's as though the church is God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. Do you want to see what God's reconciling work through Jesus looks like? Look at the church. Do you want to see what the fractures of our world being healed looks like? Look at the church. The church gathered in Christ is God's answer to our deep longing for things to be healed and remade and put right. Theologian Rowan Williams uh, puts it like this. I love this line so much. I think this is really beautifully put. Rowan Williams writes, The church exists to connect people at the level of their hunger for a new world. The church exists to connect people at the level of their hunger for a new world. Are you hungry for that? For a new world made new, made good, made perfect, made right and pure and true with no evil, no death, no sin. Are you hungry for that? That's who we are as the church, people who've begun to have that hunger filled by Jesus. Among his people gathered in him, And that leads us straight into uh, point two. We've been gathered in Christ, but of course we haven't been gathered alone. We've been gathered together. Uh, Check out those blessings that we've received according to the beginning of this passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ. It's easy to read these blessings individualistically, especially in a world like ours, and it's really true to say that each one of us individually who trusts in Jesus has all of those blessings that are described there. But here's something really important that Ephesians chapter 1 teaches us. It's that each of us individually only shares those blessings, if you like, derivatively, secondarily. I only share in those blessings because we share in those blessings. They're not something I can endure, uh, endure, enjoy rather, in pure isolation. They come to me through and in and among the people of God. Uh, the blessing, particularly in verse 5, uh, makes that clear. He destined us for adoption as his children through Christ Jesus. 
we become part of a family. And it's not a single child family. It's a, it's a family with more kids than any other family you've ever seen. It's a big family with many children. And we become a part of this family through Christ Jesus, our elder brother, now made his own sisters and brothers, daughters and sons of his father, who's now our father too. The blessings of God are a family affair to be enjoyed together. We become his inheritance, and now we share, according to verse 18, in the riches of his glorious inheritance. And what does he say? Not on our own, but his glorious inheritance among the saints. And that inheritance, verse 19, is the immeasurable riches of his power for us who believe. The same power that God put to work in raising Christ from the dead, now at work, not just in you and in me, but in us. The life of Jesus himself working itself out in this community by his spirit. People sometimes ask if you can be a Jesus follower without being a part of the church, kind of just me and Jesus without all of those other Christians. Can you have the blessing of life in Christ without life in the church? Well, the answer here in Ephesians is kind of no, you can't really. You need the church. We need one another. That's where the blessings are found. And the reason when it comes down to it is very simple. We belong to Jesus, and therefore we belong to one another. That's what the metaphor of the body of Christ is all about. It's there in verse 23, and we're going to come back to that later in the series in some more detail. We're members together of him, one body. When we become Jesus followers, we're adopted into his family, and in a sense, even more profoundly than that, as we become his body, it kind of borders on heresy to say it, but it's true. We almost, in a sense, become him. His fullness dwells in us, his body. It takes all of us together to live out his life in the world. And so to try to go it alone as a Christian is, uh, on one level, kind of like saying to Jesus, I love you, but I hate your body. The problem with that, of course, is that Jesus says, well, I love my body. I died for my body. And if you cut yourself off from my body, then you cut yourself off from me as well. The blessings of God come to us first and foremost as his people for the simple reason that because we belong to Jesus, so we belong to each other. A simple reason, but obviously not that simple in practice all the time, right? The gathering up of all things in Christ has begun in the church, but there's still quite some way to go to the fullness of time. We haven't reached new creation yet. And so along the way, there will be difficulties and, yes, even hurts in our church life together. And there may even be times when you do make a decision actually not to be a part of Christ's body in a local kind of congregational sense, in practice at least, if not spiritually. And maybe even because someone else has made it so unsafe for you in that space that it's just impossible for you to stay there. It gets complicated in practice, and that's why there's five more weeks in this series to tease out some of the details, right? beginning next week with the fundamental nature of the church as a community of grace. Being the church in practice is sometimes hard, and yet in the mysterious plan of God, that's where the blessing lies, as the risen life of Christ works itself out in relationship between his people and reverberates through those relationships out into the world. Really, though? Really? I don't know. Have a bit of a look around you, the people sitting in the pews around you. Really? Them? Us? This ragtag gathering of ordinary people is the place where God has begun his work of remaking the world? 
Now, some of you are looking around. Well, you're not looking around. You can look around. It's okay. Everyone's doing it. It's fine. It's fine. You can if you really want to. Some of you are looking around and thinking, yes, absolutely, I see it. I see God's work here. I see it happening. Others of you are thinking, ah, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Really? I don't know. And depending on the day of the week, you might feel both of those, actually, at different times. That, though, is the reason why we need the third thing about the church that this chapter teaches us. And that's this, point three, that we're gathered in the heavenly places. I don't know if you've ever asked this question before. Where's the church? Where is it? Where is the church? You might have asked, thought to ask that question before. Uh, unless, of course, it's your first time with us tonight, in which case you've probably asked that question very directly. Where is this church called St. John's that I'm going to this evening? Maybe you asked a friend who you came with. Maybe you at least asked the internet and it told you where to go. Where's the church? Well, this one's at 81 Alt Street. There are other ways to answer that question, though, of course. Uh, here's one. Where's the church? Well, it's everywhere. God has gathered people to Jesus in just about every nation on the planet, and we pray and trust that he will do so in all of those nations that haven't yet seen people come to the Lord Jesus as well. Where's the church? It's everywhere who people call on the name of Jesus as Lord. But Ephesians gives us, a, a if you like, a, a deeper, a richer, a thoroughly theological answer to that question. Where's the church? It's in the heavenly places. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, verse 3, in the heavenly places. The risen Jesus, verse 20, is seated in the heavenly places, and we, his body, are now, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, seated with him in the heavenly places. That's where the church is, in the heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? Uh, the heavenly places isn't getting at some kind of uh, disembodied existence somewhere. The heavenly places isn't a spiritual place as opposed to a material, physical place. Actually, the Bible doesn't really make that kind of distinction in reality. Instead, the heavenly places refers to the spiritual realities that are always there and yet unseen to us a lot of the time in our day-to-day -day lives. There's an invisible spiritual reality about the church that you just can't see with these organs here, these physical organs. Thank goodness, again, right? Because if you just use your eyes to look around, you go... Really? But you see, what we're being taught here is that there's another kind of sight, a spiritual sight, something that comes from God, which enables you to see the church as it really is. Check out Paul's prayer for the church in verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And he goes on to say that hope is found among the saints in the church seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Paul prays for the eyes of our hearts to be opened so that we can see with spiritual sight the spiritual reality of God's power at work in the church. Uh, it's easiest perhaps to understand the importance of this if you look at the opposite, what happens when you don't have that kind of spiritual sight about what God's doing in the church. And as always, uh, C.S. Lewis has something useful to say about this. I think it's been about two sermons since I've quoted C.S. Lewis now, so we're about due. Uh, C.S. Lewis paints a picture of what goes wrong when you don't have this kind of spiritual sight, uh, and he does it in um, one of his masterpieces, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, the book, for those who haven't read it, slight plug here, if you haven't, you've got to go and read it if you haven't read The Screwtape Letters. I mean, it's awesome. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, uh, The Screwtape Letters is uh, presented as a series of letters written by a senior demon to his apprentice. 
who is busy trying to tempt a young Christian, a new Christian, to abandon his faith in Jesus. Let me read you a little bit. Now, remember, it's letters from one demon to another demon, so there are some funny things you've got to do mentally while you read it. The enemy here refers not actually to Satan but to God. Our father below refers to the devil, right? So you know, things are flipped. Keep that in mind. Here's a little bit from the screw tape letters. The senior demon writes to his apprentice. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face. And when he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just the selection of his neighbours whom before he was converted, he had tried to avoid as much as possible. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbours, make his mind flip to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that, that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter... Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbours sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. I wonder if any of you have ever felt a little bit like that as you've looked around church before? You've looked around at your church family and thought, ah, oh, really, people like this? I don't know. Can this be real? To be honest, I'd be surprised if you haven't felt like that sometimes. I have from time to time, my life in churches. But you see what this senior demon's doing for the, for the younger demon, saying, don't let them tell you what it really is like. Fix their eyes on all of those things that are disappointing and anticlimactic about life in the church with God's people so that they don't look deeper and see what's really going on. Because there is a deeper, truer spiritual reality and we need the wisdom of the Spirit to see it clearly. The church really actually is, to quote again that beautiful phrase from C.S. Lewis's book, it's spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. The banners of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus the Christ. The risen one arrayed in splendour with his glory, with his name written on our hearts and ours on his a community gathered in him with all the life-giving resurrection power of God at work in us to begin the task of fixing the fractures and gluing the fragments back together and bringing in all the scattered remains of broken humanity. Sisters and brothers, that is who we are if we have eyes to see it. We need the wisdom of the Spirit whom our Father in heaven has given us as a seal and a pledge of our inheritance if we're to see the church not as the world sees her but as she really is, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have that sight, you will begin to see God's power at work among us. Often in very little things, someone whose anger gets better over time, someone who's wrestled with temptation, someone whose kindness spills over in unexpected ways. People who might not have a relationship with each other at all in any other sphere of life, friends with one another in the Lord because they share in the same Jesus. His resurrection power at work among us. 
Friends, that's my one prayer. Actually, I have one prayer for us as we investigate in this series what the scriptures have to teach us about the church, that God will open the eyes of our hearts to see the church. Everything else we're going to talk about flows out from that, actually. When we see the power of God working in the ordinary people who make up this gathering, then we'll know who we are and we'll experience the blessings of life in Christ and we'll live more and more in the hope to which we've been called. We will see all things being gathered up in Jesus as God begins to remake this broken world. Now, all of that still might seem pretty strange, pretty hard to believe. We've got five more weeks, so if you're not there yet, that's okay. You might be struggling to see the church as she really is. And so as we uh, conclude, I want us to just ask one more question, which is this. What is it that can enlighten the eyes of your heart? What can give you this kind of spiritual vision of the church as she really is? Having your spiritual sight be restored so that you really do see the church. Well, it happens, of course, as you look at the one in whom the church is gathered, as you look to Jesus. The Son of God who enjoyed unbroken fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, who has stepped into our fractured and fragmented world, who's lived a human life in a human body and experienced all the relational and physical falling apart that marks life under the power of sin and death, And he walked the road to the cross, a lonely figure bearing in his body all the shattered fragments of our sinful lives and burying them with himself in death so that our fractured lives can be gathered up in his risen life and remade as we share in his deathless, glorious life. Why did he do it? Verse 22. God's put all things under Christ's feet and has made him through the cross head over all things. Why? For the church. For the church, for us, for this gathering, for this community in the body of the Lord Jesus. He did it for us. So that gathered together in him, our hunger for a new world might begin to be filled as we live together in hope toward his coming again to finally put all things under his feet. That's what our Jesus has done for us. We belong to him and so we belong to one another. Let's pray. Almighty Father, look graciously upon this, your family, for which our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and given up into the hands of wicked people and to suffer death upon the cross. He who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.